You remember when your uh, kid first played baseball, your firstborn, and that horrible time that your baby child was hit with a pitch. And I don't know if your child just sort of brushed it off because he's tough like that. Or maybe he crumpled down to the ground and cried as if he would never recover from the ball hitting his bohoney. He just couldn't take it. And maybe you're one of those parents that was up in the stands that uh, someone had to hold you back from going after that kid's parents, you know. You found your way on YouTube and became a viral sensation for all the wrong reasons. I don't know. But as your child grew up, you sort of got used to the idea of the possibility of him getting hit with the pitch. It's part of the game, you know. And so it sort of reminds me that when you're repeatedly exposed to something, you sort of get used to it. The first time it happens, it might be quite a shock, might be something that's uh, surprising, upsetting, but after a while you get a little bit calloused to it. You get a little bit used to it. We see the same dynamic with soldiers who go off to war. And uh, they're exposed to the battlefield, and, and the first time that they come across a, a devastated community, or they come across some tragic event, uh, some person that's lost a limb or someone that's lost a life, you know, it's, it, it can obviously be quite upsetting, having not grown up in a situation where they would see something like that on a regular basis. But after a while, I suppose that if they can stomach all of the horrors of war and the tragedies and terrible things that mankind can do to uh, one another, they sort of become used to it, become callous to it. And it's just another tragic event that they experience. And I wonder if sometimes we've, if we've become just far too used to the crucifixion of Jesus Christ to the point that we take it for granted you know, it's a pretty strange phenomenon because we live in a society that obviously does not execute its criminals by crucifixion. Um, it's, it's not a means of execution anymore in, in our society. None of us have ever uh, hopefully witnessed anything like that. Uh, but yet everyone in our society seemingly knows that that's how Jesus died. Um, and you go back a couple of thousand years to the time of the gospel writers, the four gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, when they describe the crucifixion of Jesus, having lived in a time when people were regularly crucified by the Romans. That was the means of execution. Um, and so it was not, a, not, not anything unusual for the public to be exposed to something like that. Their description, the four gospel writers' description of the crucifixion of Jesus is not descriptive at all. They simply write something to this effect. Pilate, having scourged Jesus, delivered him to them to be crucified, and they crucified him. And that's it. That's the description that we have of the crucifixion of Jesus. You know, that's all that we have from them. And that's how we, a few thousand years later not witnessing any public crucifixions ourselves, that's how we experience what Jesus went through. 
He was crucified. That's it. But you know, the experience, actually, that Jesus went through was much more than simply He was crucified. Not too many years ago, a physician by the name of Dr. Truman Davis examined the crucifixion from a physician's point of view. And he found some very interesting things, beginning at Gethsemane. And you know, when Jesus went to Gethsemane, a number of hours before he was crucified, it was the dark of the night. Gethsemane itself was a, uh, a, an olive garden. And these huge olive trees uh, were overhead, making this garden very foreboding, very dark. Even in the brightest of uh, nights, it would be a very dark place to be. And so Jesus went there with 11 of his disciples, and he began to pray very intensely. Jesus began to pray so intensely that Luke, the one physician among the four gospel writers, he's the only one that records this phenomenon, that sweat drops like blood began to flow from Jesus' face. And whether Luke meant that Jesus was praying so intensely that he was, he was sweating so profusely. It was as if he was bleeding. That's how much sweat was pouring off of Jesus' face. Or if Luke actually meant that Jesus was literally sweating blood. Jesus was praying very intensely. In fact, the, the phenomenon of actually sweating blood, it's a very rare thing. Some theologians in the past have thought, well, that's just impossible. That's just Luke, you know, making more than this really there. He's trying to be dramatic. But actually, uh, there is a condition, a very rare condition called hemat hematidrosis, in which the capillaries and the sweat glands break when under gr great uh, stress. And so it's not unknown to the medical community for people to actually sweat blood when they are under great stress. And it was at Gethsemane, Jesus was praying very intensely these words, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. And if Jesus indeed was suffering from hematridosis, he would have quickly become very weak and sometimes go into shock. Sometimes people who suffer from that go into shock. And Jesus was arrested there in the garden. He was taken to Caiaphas, the high priest, inside the, inside the walls of Jerusalem. And he faced there his first illegal trial. And while he's standing before Caiaphas, that's where a soldier, we read, struck Jesus in the face. Why? Because he remained silent. And then palace guards blindfolded Jesus, and they began spitting on him and striking him when he was blindfolded, striking him repeatedly in the face, saying, tell us which one of us hit you. Then in the early morning hours, after a sleepless night, Jesus is taken from Caiaphas' place, the high priest's place, to the praetorium of the fortress Antonia, where the procurator of Judea, Pontius Pilate, 
ruled. And here's Jesus. He's battered and he's bruised. He's dehydrated. He's exhausted from that sleepless night. He's standing before Pilate. Pilate can't find anything wrong with him. He goes, and Jesus then has to be taken over to Herod Antipas, the tetrarch of Judea. Herod wants nothing to do with him. Jesus is taken back to Pilate. And so Herod returned Jesus to Pilate. And, and finally, after some discussion, Pilate orders the insurrectionist Barabbas released. And he has Jesus scourged. And that, again, all we have in the Bible witness is that statement. He was, had Jesus scourged. That's it. But for Jesus to be scourged, here's what happened. Jesus was stripped of his clothing and his hands were tied to a post above his head. And before the flogging, before the scourging began, you need to understand that the Jews had an ancient law that prohibited more than 40 lashes. But he wasn't being whipped by Jews. He was being whipped by Romans. The Romans weren't bound by Jewish law. Jesus very well may have received more than 40 lashes. And so a professional heavy infantryman called a legionnaire stepped forward with a, a flagrum in his hand. A flagrum is a short whip with several uh, heavy leather tongs. And at the end of these leather tongs, there were two small balls of lead attached to the ends of each to give it some weight for the whipping. And at first, the leather strips would, would have just cut through the skin. But then as the blows continue, they would cut deeper until they hit the arteries. And the small balls of lead would as they struck, would first produce deep bruises, and then as they were struck again, the bruises would break open. And by the end of the flogging, his back would have been unrecognizable. Question, what determines when a Roman flogging stops? It's not 40 lashes. What determines when a Roman flogging stops is that there is a centurion who's in charge and he evaluates when the prisoner is near death. And only when the prisoner is near death does the flogging stop. Why? Because they want to keep the prisoner alive for the execution. Then, Jesus, still before Pilate, has to stand there while the Roman soldiers mock him they mock the idea that he is a king. And what the Roman soldiers do is they take Jesus' clothes off him again and they throw a, a robe over his shoulders and they place a stick in his hand, supposed to be a, a scepter. And, uh, of course, no king is complete unless he has a crown. And so they grab some flexible branches covered in long thorns and they shape it into a crown and they lock it in their place. And then they, they press this thorny crown into his scalp. And at this point, because the scalp is one of the most vascular areas of the body, blood is now flowing down Jesus' face. And then the soldiers take the stick from Jesus' hand and they strike him across the head, driving the thorns deeper into his scalp. And finally, when they tire of their sadistic sport, they tear off the robe 
which has now become adhered to the wounds on his back. And in deference to Jewish custom, the soldiers then return Jesus' garments to him. And after Jesus is clothed once again, they take the crossbar of the cross. It's called the patibulum. And they tie it across Jesus' shoulders. And then Jesus and the two criminals who are to be executed with him and the execution detail of Roman soldiers begin their slow journey to the place of execution. And the crossbar that Jesus is carrying, which weighs approximately 110 pounds, is too heavy for Jesus to carry very far. And when he stumbles and falls, it's very likely that the beam of wood gouges his skin and muscles. And he tries to rise, but the muscles have been pushed beyond human endurance. That journey is more than six football fields in length that Jesus had to walk. And it was too much for him. And so that journey is eventually completed only because a North African man, Simon of Cyrene in modern-day Libya, is chosen to carry his cross. And then, finally, they make it to the place of execution. And Jesus there is offered an analgesic to drink. But he refuses because it will slur his speech and he has a few things to say. He's placed upon the crossbar on the ground, and there the legionnaire drives a heavy square wrought iron nail through his wrist and deep into the wood, and then the same is done with the other arm. And then Jesus' left foot is placed upon his right foot, backwards against his right foot, and with both feet extended down, a single nail is driven through the arch of each. Jesus' arms and legs would have been left in a moderately flexed position on the cross, and that's for a reason, to enable him to pull with his arms and push with his feet so that he could breathe. The Romans wanted to extend the execution for as long as possible in order to strike fear into the hearts of their subjects. And as the weight of his body on the cross caused him to sag down the nails that were in his wrist, put intense pressure on the median nerve, sending excruciating pain through his arms to the tips of his fingers. And to relieve his pain, Jesus, the prisoner, would have pushed himself up by placing his full weight on the nail through both feet. This causes even more pain as that nail tore through nerves that have broken through the metatarsal bones of his feet. And all the while, all throughout this time, his muscles have become more and more paralyzed and carbon dioxide slowly is filling up his lungs to the point where he can only utter short sentences such as, Father, forgive them. But they do not know what they're doing. We have seven statements of Jesus on the cross recorded for us in Scripture. In those statements, we hear of his, his love, his devotion to God, his mercy. You know, but there's one statement that Jesus makes from the cross that is a great 
mystery. And this is a statement that I want you to consider today. And this is a statement so profound that Mark, as well as the other gospel writers, records it in his gospel in two separate languages. First, in Aramaic, the language that Jesus was speaking on the cross. And then also, in Greek, the language that Mark was writing in, in his gospel. We read in Mark 15, 34, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is translated, My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? And the reason that I want us to consider this statement today is simply because of one little thing. As little as the Gospels tell us about the physical suffering that Jesus went through, Jesus himself gave no additional information about it. The only thing the Gospels say about the physical nature of Jesus' crucifixion was he was crucified. That's it. And that's all Jesus ever said about it too. And as fearful and as painful as the physical death of Jesus on the cross must have been to him, he never mentioned it. Back in the Garden of Gethsemane, in that passage that we referenced just a few minutes ago, Jesus prayed that his father would remove, quote, this cup from him. Again, that passage, Mark 14, 36 says, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. What is this cup? Is is this cup that Jesus wanted removed simply a natural fear of physical suffering and death? I mean, certainly it would be for me. But I don't think that's what it was for Jesus. Because there have been, throughout history, many people that faced death bravely. And without hesitation. In fact, there have been many Christians who faced the exact same kind of death as Jesus. And they faced it bravely and without hesitation. And certainly Jesus, the one man who is also fully God, the one man who never at any time expressed uncertainty about anything, He would not face physical death less bravely than others. And so I believe this cup that Jesus wanted removed had to be more than simply, I fear death. I fear suffering. I think it's more than that. You see, in the Old Testament, a cup many times is a metaphor for punishment. Especially the retribution of God against sin. 
And so when Jesus identified with sinful humans on the cross, he became the object of the holy wrath of God against sin. And it was this that Jesus feared. So when Jesus prayed in the darkness of the olive tree garden called Gethsemane, the full terror of receiving the totality of God's wrath, it became very real to Jesus. And you know, all throughout Jesus' ministry, he knew that his death was coming. He knew it was coming. It was the heart of his mission. I mean, he set himself from the very beginning of his ministry at his baptism to do his Father's will, and he knew what his Father's will was. His Father's will was for him to die on the cross for the sins of you and me. And even before Jesus' ministry began, when Jesus was only 12 years old, he knew he had to be about his father's business, as he told his mother. But now, at Gethsemane, the cup of God's wrath that he is about to drink is so bitter and so awful that he can taste it before it ever hits his lips. It is so horrifying a prospect that he cannot help but cry out to his father for deliverance if it were possible, as the previous verse says. Yet in the end, no matter how terrible the experience of doing the will of God is, he will do it. He is determined to do his Father's will. Jesus fully submits himself. Jesus fully surrenders himself to his Father's agenda. Your will is my will. Let your will be done. Then hours later, hanging on the cross, Jesus now not only fears the abandonment of God, but he feels it in its totality. And he cries out, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? You know, many theologians believe, and yet only God knows for sure, that when the sins of the world were poured out on Jesus on the cross, that not only did he feel abandoned by the Father, but that he actually was abandoned by the Father. But at the very least, as far as the experience of Jesus goes, it matters not whether he just simply felt it or whether it was real in the spiritual realm. The abandonment felt real. And this was the only time, by the way, the only time in Jesus' life that he prayed by addressing God with the impersonal title, God. The only time he ever called God, God, in prayer. Every other time that Jesus prayed, he expressed to God a personal intimacy. He called him his heavenly Father. But now, when the sin of the world was upon him, and he was receiving the divine punishment for all of our sins, Jesus feels too distant from God to call him anything but God.
Yet even in this moment of despair, there's hope. There's hope in these words. You see, God may seem very distant to Jesus, but he is still my God. In fact, I'm told that the original language puts the emphasis of Jesus' claim on that personal part, and that he said, he's actually saying on the cross, my God, my God. He's making a claim that God is still his. And not only is there hope, but there's victory. There's victory in the statement. When Jesus cries out and he says, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Why have you forsaken me? There's hope in this statement. Because the student of Scripture already knows what I'm about to say, that Jesus was actually quoting a passage of Scripture written a millennia before by his own ancestor, by the king whose kingdom he now fulfills, King David, about a thousand years before. In Psalm 22, this is what David wrote. My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? In the psalm that certainly begins as a point of despair, doesn't end that way. David writes in verse 1 of Psalm 22, My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Why are you so far from my deliverance and from my words of groaning? My God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. By night, yet I have no rest. But you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. Our ancestors trusted in you. They trusted and you rescued them. They cried to you and were set free. They trusted in you and were not disgraced. But I am a worm and not a man. Scorned by mankind and despised by people. Everyone who sees me mocks me. They sneer and shake their heads. He relies on the Lord. Let him save him. Let the Lord rescue him since he takes pleasure in him. It was you who brought me out of the womb, making me secure at my mother's breast. I was given over to you at birth. You have been my God from my mother's womb. Don't be far from me, because distress is near and there is no one to help. Many bulls surround me, strong ones of Bashan encircle me. They open their mouths against me. Lions mauling and roaring, I am poured out like water. All of my bones are disjointed. My heart is like wax melting within me. My strength is dried up like baked clay. My tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You put me into the dust of death. For dogs have surrounded me. A gang of evildoers have closed in on me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. People look and stare at me. They divided my garments among themselves. They, they cast lots for my clothing. But you, Lord. Don't be far away. My strength, come quickly to help me. Rescue my life from the sword, my only life from the power of these dogs. Save me from the lion's mouth, from the horns of the wild oxen. And here's the victory. David writes, you answered me. 
I will proclaim your name to my brothers and sisters. I will praise you in the assembly. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, honor him. All you descendants of Israel, revere him. For he has not despised or abhorred the torment of the oppressed. He did not hide his face from him, but listened when he cried to him for help. I will give praise in a great assembly because of you. I will fulfill my vows before those who fear you. The humble will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek the Lord will praise him. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. All the families of the nations will bow down before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord. He rules the nations. All who prosper on earth will eat and bow down. All those who go down to the dust will kneel before him. Even the one who cannot preserve his life. Their descendants will serve him. The next generation will be told about the Lord. They will come and declare his righteousness to a people yet to be born. They will declare what he has done. The cry that began with the feeling of abandonment ends in victory. And Jesus' cry on the cross when he certainly felt abandoned by his father, ended in victory. Because Jesus did die on that cross, and he was buried in that grave. But Jesus rose from the dead. And not only did he rise from the dead in order to give you and me eternal life, but Jesus ascended to heaven as Lord over all He is the King of kings. He's the Lord of lords. And one day, He's coming back. When Jesus comes back, there will be no mistake. Everyone will know, and every knee will bow before Him as the Lord. Jesus gives us, each one of us, an opportunity in this life to place our faith In Him. And if we will, then we will be a part of God's eternal plan for all eternity. We'll be a part of God's kingdom. We'll be a part of God's family. And nothing will ever separate us from the love of God. I don't know about you, but I'm grateful that Jesus walked that path all the way to the cross, enduring the shame and the punishment and the death that I rightly deserve. But Jesus did it for me, and he did it for you. Most of all, he did it to glorify his heavenly Father. If today you're ready to turn to him in faith, Jesus is simply a prayer way. All you have to do is say yes. Yes, I will follow you, Jesus. I will submit to you because I believe what you did on the cross was for me. Would you turn to him today?